This podcast was produced on Friday, October 23rd at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. You know, the whispers in the night that influenced Donald Trump, which are still a mystery to most of the known universe, that caused him to sort of pop off, um, will still be floating around for the coming four years if he's reelected. That is incredibly challenging. Canada-U.S. relationship has been through a lot during Donald J. Trump's first term. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. It's been marked by fear and a lot of ups. Prime Minister, I pledge to work with you in pursuit of our many shared interests. And downs. In terms of negotiating with with, uh, President Trump and then after, he was very clear He wanted to win, and he wanted us to lose. A lot of downs. Canadians were polite, were reasonable, but we also will not be pushed around. There's a uh, special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump. Trade has been a crucial point of contention. The USMCA is the largest, fairest, most balanced, and modern trade agreement ever achieved. There's never been anything like it. Canada is not going to become a dumping ground for U.S. overproduction. The president says he's going to reimpose some tariffs on Canadian aluminum. Canada was taking advantage of us, as usual. As we head towards Election Day in the United States, we look at what four more years of Donald Trump could mean for Canada and what a Joe Biden presidency would mean for those of us north of the border. Viva la Canada. (laughs) The former U.S. vice president has an ambitious climate plan. Biden also wants to scrap the Keystone XL pipeline. It certainly is not welcome news for Alberta when the energy sector is is already suffering. What will a new president mean for Canada's economy and our shared priorities on tackling climate change, trade, and yes, dealing with China? Gerald Butts, James Moore, Alex Panetta, and Sean McCarthy helped illuminate that question. The U.S. presidential election wasn't the only contest creating political waves this week. Here in Ottawa, MPs brought the country to the brink of an election over the question of who really runs the House of Commons. Let me be very clear. The only way there is an election right now is because the Prime Minister chooses to have one. It is quite sad that he'll he'll roll the dice with lives in order to, to save his political power. This is a serious matter. What they propose here is extremely serious. They go over the limits. I mean, it's, it's irresponsible. And it was about paralyzing the government. HuffPost Canada's senior politics editor Ryan Maloney joins me for that chat about the election call that never happened. Well, at least not for now. It's a packed show. Stick around. a lot of people in Ottawa who've had firsthand experience in managing a relationship with the Trump administration. And there are fewer still who've done so from the Prime Minister's office who are willing to talk openly about it. There's only one person I could think of. My name is Gerald Butts. I'm Vice Chairman of Eurasia Group. I live here in Ottawa, Canada. Thank you very much, Jerry. I wanted to start off by asking you, while very few people have the um, experience that you do in terms of dealing with the White House, 
Can you take us back a little bit uh, to the last presidential election? Um, what was going through the prime minister's office's mind when it came to what the results would be? And um, how did you begin to prepare to manage that relationship? Well, I think it's uh, similar. I'm sure it's similar to what's going through people's minds now, which is um, once there are two nominated candidates, one for each party, then there's a good chance that either one of them could be president of the United States. So uh, given how important having a productive relationship with that office is, you need to have a contingency plan for whomever wins. And uh, we certainly had two plans, um, which have a lot of similarities because the country's interests don't change. But we had different plans for uh, a president, Donald Trump, and a president, Hillary Clinton, as I'm sure my former colleagues have one now for a president, Donald Trump, second term, or a president, Joe Biden. There wasn't that much that was known about what uh, President Trump's uh, mandate would look like with regards to Canada. Did you feel like part of that was um, an education about the relationship? An education for him or for us? For him. Well, we did know that he had this marquee proposal out there to rip up NAFTA, which had a major impact or would have a major impact were he to win the election. So we thought long and hard about that in the run up to the campaign and through the campaign. And I think one of the reasons that we were able to successfully renegotiate NAFTA in a way that had minimal negative impact on Canada was that we did put that thinking into it. Um, I think it's generally true that most American presidents uh, spend less time thinking about Canada than most Canadians spend thinking about the United States. So we had to make our case based on fact and as uh, comprehensively as we could. He's very unpredictable. Was the relationship harder to manage than expected? Well, I, I think we expected it to be a bit of a challenge. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure it was any more difficult than we thought it was going to be. I think as far as his unpredictability goes, I think he's he's a relatively, um, this may sound paradoxical, but he he's pretty predictable in his unpredictability. It's kind of uh, you have a sense of where the guy was coming from on trade uh, from way back in years and years before he was in politics he gave all kinds of interviews about what he thought of free trade and what he thought of german auto imports and uh, he's a mercantilist so we kind of understood that uh, going in and he was pretty consistent to those views just finishing up with trump because one thing i find really interesting in the way the trade negotiations have happened or the tariff negotiations that happened is he doesn't seem like a trustworthy partner you make a deal with him on one thing, and then like two weeks later, he decides to reimpose tariffs or impose tariffs, or now you have to agree to lower quotas. I mean, how do you how do you deal with that? I don't think it's particularly helpful if you're on the other side of the table with him to evaluate what you think he may or may not do based on whether or not you think he may be trustworthy. I think the way I kind of look at it is when you're trying to do a deal with the Trump administration, just be aware that the conventional rules don't necessarily apply, that uh, normally there is a negotiation process, a deal is concluded, 
everybody agrees to the deal and walks away agreeing to the deal. Whereas in my experience anyway, as both a participant and um, uh, latterly an observer of the Trump administration is that the deal is never really done. It's always subject to revision. It's always subject to new caveats and new uh, qualifiers. And you just accept that as a fact of life. What would the challenges of op and opportunities of a Joe Biden president offer Canada? You know, I think we'd still have all of the traditional irritants that exist in the bilateral relationship between Canada and the United States. We certainly like have softwood lumber, <laughs> like softwood lumber, and um, uh, uh, maybe supply management, coordinated missile defense. You know the the whole the, the whole nine yards the things that we're accustomed to dealing with with the united states i think the biggest change of course will be in biden's approach to climate and energy which is probably the biggest single policy difference maybe the most important policy difference between biden and trump and uh there are big opportunities there for canada and there are also pretty enormous challenges in particular for the traditional fossil-based resource sector. Biden has said that he is opposed to Keystone Pipeline and he would uh, tear up those contracts. I assume that means that the process would be biked on in the courts. I mean, is it really likely that Keystone would be dead with Biden? I think that there, there's no question that, uh, like the last White House he was a senior official in, uh, a Biden White House would be much less favorably predisposed to KXL, but it's also true that we're not much farther along after four years of a pro-KXL Republican president than we were uh, under a Democratic administration. I think that the key issue here, from a very big picture perspective, the reason we're having so much trouble on these files uh, that involve bilateral trade in conventional energy with the United States is that the United States produces a lot more of its own conventional energy than it used to. And therefore, within the U.S. system, pipelines that bring it in from elsewhere are much less important than they used to be. I think from a, from a sort of macro perspective, though, the biggest challenge, and this is true no matter who wins on November the 3rd, is a, a, it's a very different relationship between the two biggest economies in the world, the United States and China. Uh, and that's not going to change, really. If Joe Biden is elected president, I think you'll see an American administration that would try and gather like-minded countries through multilateral institutions and have a more kind of strategic approach to the change or containment of uh, Chinese power, both economically and from a military perspective. The direction of travel is going to be the same no matter who is in the White House, because you know, the example that I use a lot with uh, our clients at Eurasia Group is the United States has, it's in one of the most polarized political environments it's ever been in. And this is a country that had a one of the bloodiest civil wars in history. It's a very pol polarized place. But the, the motion to censure China on Hong Kong passed the Senate 100 to nothing. So, um, there aren't many things that have passed the U.S. Senate 100 to nothing uh, in living memory. 
this is a bipartisan thing that is going to change um, the structure of the global economy, the structure of trade. Obviously, tech, the, the tech supply chain is uh, being transformed by it. And geopolitically, it's the most significant question in the world. I remember even when Biden was here for uh, the state dinner that the prime minister had for him when he was still the vice president, he was basically praising the liberal government, saying to Prime Minister Trudeau that he needed to step up and be the representative of the liberal economic world order, that we had to safeguard multilateral institutions. So I assume that a President Biden will re-engage in the world, and we've already heard him on like the uh, Paris Climate Accord, for example. But how does that change the way we relate with those institutions? That's a really good question. I, I don't think it changes all that much. I think it means that the force multiplier behind our efforts would be more positive, that we, uh, if you have a like-minded administration from a foreign policy perspective in the United States, the chances of getting things done are much greater. But um, I think there's a danger in overestimating just how internationally focused a new democratic administration would become. I think that most of, very little of the current, as is true with most, certainly most post-Cold War U.S. presidential campaigns, this is very much a domestic issue election. And I think that the Biden people or the Trump people, whomever wins is going to interpret their marching orders as to be primarily focused on um, ending the, or improving the management of the pandemic in the United States and um, uh, economic recovery, that all other, in particular, foreign policy concerns are going to take a backseat to those. All that said, um, the, the, the issue where there's the strongest linkage between domestic and foreign policy in the United States these days is probably the and where things would change the most would be uh, a Biden administration's approach to climate. I think it's important to kind of take a step back and look at the plan that Biden has proposed. It's It would have been unimaginable for a presidential candidate for either party to campaign on such an expansive, aggressive climate plan even four or five years ago. Uh, what Biden is proposing goes way beyond anything contemplated in the Obama years. And it's interesting to me as uh, a veteran of politics and a political observer, just how the Democratic Party, largely for demographic reasons, in my view, has made climate one of its um, keystone uh, cornerstone issues. And uh, I don't think that's going to change because I think that that is a reflection of millennials being the if not outright, soon to be the largest generation in the United States. And it is consistently on the top of their radar screens, which makes sense because they have a lot of skin in the game. So that's going to change things drastically. And I think in the last, uh, in the calendar year 2020, a lot of bad things have happened, no doubt about it. But there's been a lot of progress on climate, both at the regional level, the European Union, the national level, new policies in significant countries, uh, especially, but not exclusively China. And at the firm level, very large financial institutions and globally significant companies have made 
net zero uh, commitments and very strong climate policy. So I think that the United States suddenly has, at least in the Trump years, seems to be the outlier. And as we all know about the United States, especially Canadians, that it's a big aircraft carrier and it's hard to turn. But once it turns, it, uh, it really makes a difference. Let me end by asking you what you are going to be watching for, kind of with the Canada hat, though, because I know you have a global hat with Eurasia Group, but you are in the nation's capital. What what will be going through your mind and what will you be watching for on Election Day? I think that the, there are a bunch of things. I think the key thing will be how strong the mandate is for either or whomever wins. I think the uh, back in January, we do a at Eurasia Group, we do a, what we think are the top risks facing the geopolitical order every year. And this year before the pandemic, we said that we thought the perceived or actual illegitimacy of the U.S. presidential election was the biggest geopolitical risk on Earth. And it's the first time in the 22-year history of the firm that we identified an American domestic political risk as the number one risk uh, in the world. And that'll show you just how much the geopolitical order has changed uh, in our adult lifetimes. If it is a mess, and we don't know for several weeks um, who will be the next occupant of the White House, or if Donald Trump doesn't have to move out. Does the relationship not continue? I mean, yes, we don't know which connections to make and um, what issues we might be uh, championing or lobbying um, for, but still, it seems like so much of the relationship functions regardless of who's in the White House. I say that because then what is the risk? I, I mean... From like a global citizen's point of view, I, I obviously don't want to see the United States erupt in violence and chaos. But as a decision maker, a potential, what is, why is that what would give the Prime Minister's office anxiety for the next? Well, I don't want to speak for I don't want to speak for them, obviously. Uh, but my main concern would be just how many Canadians there are in the United States, right? Um, and absolutely. And, and they tend to live and most Canadians tend to live in big, uh, urban centers in the United States, where if there were to be civil disobedience that descended, not even civil disobedience, it's the wrong way to put it. If there were violent protests or violent clashes between protesters, my main concern would be the health and safety of the many, many Canadians that live in the United States. I think it's it's a harsh truth of markets that um, when you look at this summer, we had by any objective measure the most significant protests and, and civil disobedience in a, a generation in the United States. And from a market perspective, the markets yawned at it. It it didn't move uh, markets in the United States. So I don't. I think from a macroeconomic perspective, things have to get really, really, really bad before you can, uh, and widespread across the United States before it will have an impact on markets. But the human impact and the individual Canadian individuals who are living in the United States—that's what I would be most concerned about if I were um, uh, in the Prime Minister's office. Well, let's hope it doesn't happen. Let's hope it doesn't happen. Thank you very much. You are welcome. 
Gerald Butts is the vice chairman of the Eurasia Group, a global political risk consultancy firm. He previously served as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's principal secretary, a job he also did for former Ontario Premier Dalton McGuinty. Coming up later on the show. So Canada's opportunity slash role in that, I think for the most part is to keep our head down. The economic fallout from COVID-19 is still going to continue. And there's still plenty of opportunity for there to be all kinds of scapegoating and the mess of that scapegoating of the economic collapse and, and for a lot of firms and a lot of industries could splatter in a lot of directions and it could come north and hurt Canada. Former Conservative Cabinet Minister James Moore joins CBC Washington correspondent Alex Panetta for a chat on other facets of the Canada-US relationship that might be impacted by the next occupant of the Oval Office. Hi there. Hi, Sean, how are you? Good. I need to I need to muzzle some dogs. <laughs> I don't hear them anymore. Uh, no, but I can't count on it. Readers of the Globe and Mail will no doubt recognize Sean McCarthy's byline. The veteran journalist spent years writing on energy and the environment at the Globe, as well as on business and politics. He still writes occasionally and is a senior counsel with Sussex Strategy Group. I called Sean to help explain what Joe Biden and Donald Trump really proposed to do on climate and energy. Trump came in with a promise to roll back just about everything that Barack Obama did on climate change. Uh, he, one of his first actions was to promise to take the U.S. and, and file notice that he was going to take the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, um, which uh, I, I believe actually takes uh, official effect um, later this year. Um, he rolled back uh, um, the Obama administration's uh, clean energy plan, which focused on the, the power sector. He promised to bring back clean, beautiful coal and, uh, and make that, you know, a, a, an important part of the U.S. energy um, picture again, which, which while he wanted to, uh, really hasn't happened. Uh, and then he rolled back all kinds of other um, regulations from um, cutting methane emissions in the oil and gas industry to expanding and uh, toughening the uh, fuel efficiency regulations that were uh, supposed to take in effect uh, and really, uh, really drive the U.S. auto industry to much, and the Canadian one, which because they're joined, uh, to much greater efficiencies and adoption of electric vehicles. So right across the board, he has he has rolled the U.S. government back and and uh, away from climate action. Um, that being said, there is still a lot of state and private sector um, engagement on the climate sector, on the climate change uh, file, and uh, they've really stepped up and taken the lead, states like California and New York, and, and frankly, a lot of the private sector who are making new commitments to uh, drive to net zero um, emissions by 2050. The Liberal government has has made new commitments um, as of the 2019 election on climate change. Um, the existing target is 30% below uh, 2005 levels by 2030 uh, emissions reductions. The, they have promised two things. One is uh, net zero emissions by 2050 
And secondly, is to have a more ambitious 2030 target um, that, um, that they will um, tr try to hit. So um, we're a long way from make, meeting even the, the less ambitious 30% uh, target. It's not impossible to, to get there. Um, getting to net zero is, is just an enormous turning of the Titanic. Um, anybody who spends any time looking at the issue realizes that we're not going backward. Governments will either move forward, uh, dragging their feet, they will be in denial, or, or they will be fully engaged. And um, uh, so far, the Trump administration was, was in denial. I, I would say the Republican Party prior to Trump was moving forward slowly. Um, there were Republicans uh, in, in, in Congress, uh, John McCain, for one, who sponsored climate legislation that would have put uh, a price on carbon. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was a Republican governor of California and was very aggressive on climate change. But the Republican Party has changed dramatically under Trump. And now anybody, any, any Republican member of Congress, whether Senate or, or in the House of Representatives, who champion any action on climate change was likely to face a primary challenge. And so climate change became a third rail for Republican politicians. So if Trump wins, we'll get four more years of really the same. The climate file is seen as part of a deregulation, get government out of out of uh, the way of business um, movement that that frankly had some short term uh, impacts on on jobs. You know, and before the pandemic, the U.S. economy was frankly was doing pretty well, and uh, um, some of that. Um, Hard to say how much would might be attributable to uh, to the deregulation approach that that Trump has taken. I think there's long-term costs to that, um, but um, that would those long-term costs I don't think will become apparent in in the next few four years. For Canada, it would be um, once again swimming against the stream um, for any government in Canada that wanted to impose significant climate costs on the economy. None of the climate change action um, comes without cost. Um, you know, it, it's energy prices are going to be higher for, for producers and for consumers. You can offset that to some degree by rebating it back as the liberals have for households, but the, but the industrial sector is still paying the cost on on any any uh, policies that impose um, emission regulations on them, that is that is far more difficult to do when you have your major trading partner um, rolling back regulation where they don't have to pay these costs. Long story short, under Trump, we it would be more of the same. It would be you know we would we would be looking at a U.S. government that uh, was not showing any leadership on the climate file. Um, and and both in terms of the difficulty of Canada to to do so, and and perhaps more importantly, the, the lost opportunity to the world to really um, 
slow this down and to avert the long-term really catastrophic impacts that are going to happen and from climate change you know towards the second half of of this century uh if if we don't have leadership from the world's second largest emitter let alone uh in addition to i guess countries like china and india who are who are also the big emitters vice president joe biden um this summer published a a um, comprehensive climate plan that um, across the board will will put the federal U.S. federal government back in the game. Um, he will immediately rejoin the Paris Accord. He has said that um, one of the first things he will do will be to meet with the leaders of China and India and some of the other large, presumably the EU and presumably Canada, uh, will be at the table to um, redouble international efforts to come to grips with climate change and then he will undertake a whole bunch of um, domestic actions aimed at reducing emissions in the united states um, the, the 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 power sector the electricity system is their biggest challenge uh, in terms of in terms of carbon it's it's much less carbon intensive, as, as we say, uh, than it used to be. Uh, the use of coal is way down, even, you know, four years of President Trump promising to revive beautiful, clean coal has not happened. Uh, it has continued to decline, um, but there's a lot of natural gas that has taken its place and natural gas um, emits carbon as well. So just a lot of regulation he will reimpose and fuel efficiency mandates that will uh, make the U.S. automobile fleet, you know, twice as fuel efficient and therefore half as carbon intensive, reducing emissions uh, in that sector. Um, big mandates on, on electric vehicles. It is a comprehensive plan. One of the challenges Biden will face among many um, is what happens in the Senate. So, you know, right now the Republicans control the Senate. Um, the Democrats need to win four seats that are up for election right now to gain control of the Senate. And, uh, that's that, you know, there are a couple that everybody thinks the Democrats can win. Uh, when you start getting to three or four, it becomes more challenging. If the Republicans control the Senate, uh, it's going to be much, much harder to push climate legislation through. So Biden's, Biden's climate slash energy policy will, will provide both challenges and, and opportunities for Canada. And there's going to be a much bigger market if, uh, if the U.S. government is, is um, um, requiring its economy to transition. So you think of, for example, um, Manitoba, Quebec, and BC all currently export power into the U.S. And, and would like to do a lot more of that. And if Biden is driving um, um, U.S. utilities to um, decarbonize, there will be those opportunities. Now, there, there will also be competition. And um, we have 
we have startup companies and, and even uh, commercial companies that are um, moving into world markets with in areas like hydrogen and energy storage and one concern about Democrats, although uh, Trump was, was never shy about this either, but uh, Democrats um, are more, tend to be more protectionist. There has been talk in the Biden plan of, of having Buy America um, provisions in uh, government procurement, and that's a massive market for Canadian producers. So um, there will be a lot of work to try to head off any uh, Buy American provisions. On the whole, I would say, from a Canadian perspective, you know, uh, oil and gas is a, is a big Canadian industry, and you know, if if it's going to be in decline because of a Biden presidency and and a Biden international effort to move the world off um, oil oil and gas, uh, both in the power sector and in the uh, transportation sector and so on, um, that's that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt Alberta and, and Saskatchewan and, and Canada more broadly, uh, given that's the, our reliance on that industry. I, I would imagine if you're a producer, oil producer in Calgary right now, and and your and your only uh, concern around the U.S. election is uh, how welcome your product is in in the United States, you're probably hoping for Donald Trump. That was the voice of Sean McCarthy, a senior counsel with Sussex Strategy Group and a former Globe and Mail journalist. While the U.S. presidential candidates' positions on climate and energy are watched with interest by decision-makers across the country, there is far more to the Canada-U.S. relationship than oil and greenhouse gas emissions. For more on the opportunities and challenges that lie ahead, I reached out to two smart people whose insight I've always found helpful. James Moore, advisor at Denton's Canada and Edelman, uh, former Minister of Industry and uh, happy uh, podcast uh, participant with the lovely Althea Raj. Oh, that's great, thanks. I'm uh, Alex Panetta, a Washington correspondent with uh, CBC News. Thanks to both of you for joining me. Good to be here. Pleasure to be with you. Maybe I'll start off with Alex, um, because you have spent some time on the road, even though there has been a pandemic. Tell us what uh, what you've noticed. I would say that the mood the mood in this country is pretty angry, you know. And and I, I don't like I, I wrote a piece from my my trip to uh, to uh, Michigan, uh, talking about a a, a, a country um, at a boiling point and. You know, just one story. In in, in Michigan, I, I I saw this Donald Trump. The reason I was in this county in Michigan, Western Michigan, because it was you know these purple counties. So I I saw a picture of um, I saw a Donald Trump uh, uh, poster uh, next to you know in a storefront, and next door there was a Black Lives Matter sign. I said it's fantastic. I'll I'll get out here and take a picture of this. It's, it illustrates my story. I get out, and before I know it, I'm in a shouting match between neighbors. And 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 then there's threats of physical violence, and and I'm like, what the hell is this? like? And and then you know from there I go on to meet the head of the Democratic Party uh, in that area, and he's a, a, a you know he mentions to me casually at the end of our interview that he's a professor of he was a professor of German history, and he's terrified that he sees the you know all the makings of the Weimar Republic basically falling apart because it's it's so bitter and angry and polarized. 
And, and, and uh, anyways, the reason I was in this county was to tell the story about basically a pretty moderate county, a swing county. And I realized, maybe that's not the story of this election. The story of this election is how everybody feels on edge about what's ha- coming after November 3rd. You know, James, you've been uh, involved with Canada-U.S. relations as a cabinet minister, but you've also been involved as an advisor with this liberal government. The polarizing that Alex talks about, how have you noticed that um, in your role on the trade file, for example? Well, in the NAFTA Council, I mean, it, it's a very sort of strategic, I think, transactional relationship on the business level, which is government to government and and guaranteeing market access. And we, we can't um, say often enough that, you know, about one in five Canadian jobs is directly linked and dependent on access to the Canadian to the American marketplace. So our NAFTA trade two-way relationship with the United States is critical for our economic health and well-being. So depending on who's in the White House, you know, Stephen Harper, we had our trade issues and files and conflicts with George W. Bush. We had them with Barack Obama. Uh, you know, Donald Trump was a tectonic shift because the entirety of NAFTA was on, on the brink of being abrogated by the president of the United States. And then you had steel and aluminum tariffs. You had the United States walking away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There were multi-levels of fronts of just a wholesale attack on, on trade. A quarter to a third of Americans have always been antagonistic towards the free trade agreement with Canada and NAFTA as an extension with with uh, Mexico. Um, but of course, it, it reached an apex boiling point when you had Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders combined in 2016, winning two thirds of all the presidential primaries that happened in both the parties. And both candidates were stridently saying we need to scrap and kill and abrogate NAFTA. So th- something has happened. So uh, I think for the government of Canada, it still is very much a transactional relationship and and it'll change. So imagine Joe Biden becomes president of the United States and imagine um, in South Carolina, Lindsey Graham loses. Um, they the Democrats win Colorado, the Democrats win, win Arizona and they win the Senate. Well, a bunch of issues come off the table, but new issues come on the table. So Chuck Schumer now becomes the Senate majority leader. And then now you have um, dairy issues and those border issues, which were not dominant issues for the Trump administration, but could well be under a Democrat-controlled tripartite um, governance structure in the United States. So at all times, Canada has to, be, has to be on a strategic footing with the United States to protect our industries and our market access. And I think that's what the government spends most of its time worrying about at the highest level. Beneath that, though, you do have to pay attention to the, the rolling boil of tensions in the United States that Alex just described. People are deeply divided, but they're not divided over an agreed dominant issue. They're divided over identity. And so, as Alex just described, you have a bunch of Americans say the dominant issue in America is um, racial reconciliation and ensuring that we have some kind of equal access to a basic form of socialized medicine. And then you have the other side saying the dominant issue is we need to stand up to Washington, smash our infrastructure and and protect our the, the political infrastructure, that is and maintain our freedom of the Second Amendment, free speech, and so on. So you have like two ships passing in the night yelling at each other, but there, b- nobody agrees on what the issues are because people are so siloed in these in these uh, sense of identity politics. And that is, that is really hard to recover from no matter what happens on election day. It seems that though while that's true and they're even like diverging point, points of you getting further and further apart on so many issues, I look at the candidates and I think, you know, they kind of agree when it comes to certain trade issues like uh, by American provisions. They kind of agree on things like China, 
So let me just ask generally, does it matter who is in the White House and how is it going to matter? And since, James, you brought us to trade, maybe let's start with trade. What I think you would probably see is a continuation of bi-American policies. Uh, Joe Biden is, is actually promising to, to be even more aggressive in the adoption of those policies. And he, he's saying that he wants uh, his you know $2 trillion green infrastructure plan to use American labor. Uh, so you'd see continued bi-American uh, provisions. The, the things that were, that were that might change is you might, probably wouldn't see the United States being as uh, creative in its use of national security tariffs um, against uh, Canada specifically and probably uh, in general. The new USMCA, NAFTA, Kuzma, whatever you want to call it, uh, has got some uh, uh, little noticed provisions in there that could be really important. There are, there, it creates these, these uh, panels on agriculture, uh, labor, and economic competitiveness. That economic competitiveness panel could be an excellent way for Canada, creating policymakers, to advance their agenda uh, with American interlocutors in a way that's kind of below the radar. Like you don't have to come to Capitol Hill and and sort of you know plead cap in hand for stuff. You could just quietly talk about things like skills recognition, visas, labor mobility, uh, you know, uh, uh, processing of goods at the border in a way that you know uh, could advance Canadian priorities uh, in a in a relatively nonpartisan way. James, you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And, and I, I think it certainly depends on who's in the White House, all that on, on the different files. But there'll be a difference of emphasis, a difference of modality. And also, you know, as former Speaker of the House from Spokane, Washington, Tip O'Neill always used to remind that all politics is local, right? So Chuck Schumer, why does he care about milk? Because of, you know, the New England uh, dairy farmer union that exists that is always anxious about the cost of milk. And so it's a very localized thing. If Joe Biden becomes president of the United States, that Keystone XL pipeline becomes the center focus issue, probably between election day through until inauguration. I think Ambassador Kirsten Hillman in Washington and the government of Canada is going to be doing a full core press trying to get some reconsideration and re-rationalization of the KXL promise uh, and to some kind of a more balanced approach than what Joe Biden said back in May or June of this year, where he said, this is dirty oil and we don't need it. So so the, the issues change based on local politics and, and the dynamics of things, but trade will always be an issue. It'll just be, frankly, a different set of commodities and a different set of priorities. Are we expecting that should Donald Trump win again, uh, that anything will change uh, in his approach to the use of tariffs or just even, and I'm not even sure like what else I'm trying to ask here, but like, is that just the way forward? <laughs> is that just the way yeah, forward? It, it, would be, it would be expected that, that, that Vice President Biden would frankly have a more diplomatic, more professional and more predictable approach to trade matters. Whereas Donald Trump literally matters would just come out of the blue, um, particularly as we've seen on steel and aluminum that would just pop up as a result of the last smartest person who had an influence over him and or he needed to wag the dog from his latest tweet that was consequential and and suppressing the satisfaction of his base or what have you. So, I mean, you know, you know the whispers in the night that influenced Donald Trump, which are still a mystery to most of the known universe that caused him to sort of pop off. Um, will still be floating around for the coming four years if he's reelected. That is incredibly challenging. On the other hand, Donald Trump certainly does want to claim success that the new NAFTA is his great achievement and a remarkable achievement and he delivered for America and all that. Any rational person who looks at the old NAFTA and the new NAFTA realizes it's a series of tweaks and changes that are modest in application, not that big of a deal in consequence. And actually the most important part in my view of the new NAFTA versus the old one is the forced mandate for re-ratification over time, which forces us to stay engaged. But 
but Donald Trump could well claim success on the Canada-U.S. file and kind of move on, but that would depend on the kind of antagonisms or the aspiration to wag the dog um, based on domestic politics going forward. But again, he'll be a president who's not looking for re-election, so I don't know, frankly, how much he'll necessarily care to do that. So it's second-term presidents are very different animals than, than first-term presidents. I'd be watching two trade issues if Trump uh, gets re-elected. The first is uh, what he does with Canadian aluminum right after the election, because You'll recall that they, you know, those tariffs were removed and then punted. And the decision about what to do was punted until after the election, uh, uh, second week of November, I believe, is the earliest date at which uh, a new uh, move toward new tariffs could uh, could happen. The second thing I'd be looking for is um, if if Robert Lighthizer doesn't stay on as U.S. Trade Representative, uh, you know, he was kind of already kind of quasi retired before he was pulled into the, to that USTR role. Uh, so assuming he, he, he goes away, who would he be replaced with? And what does that person say about the World Trade Organization? Because Robert Lighthizer personally hates the WTO and, and has made clear he would be perfectly happy if its dispute settlement body remains paralyzed forever. Well, it's paralyzed because of the United States. Exactly. And, and, and he's basically played a central role, role in that. They've, they've refused to add new uh, panelists to that body. So you've paralyzed the appeals body. Then you have the, the regular dispute body, where if the U.S. loses a case, like on Softwood Lumber recently, you say, oh, I'm appealing it up to that other thing, so the case stays alive, but there's no one to listen to it. And so you basically, you, you essentially, you know, you put a major dent in the world trading system that way. So, and, and remember, Canada no longer has uh, Chapter 11, there's, you know, the NAFTA, the old uh, investor state system that existed in NAFTA is gone. So we're relying on the World Trade Organization for free trade and infrastructure. Uh, we're relying on um, on, 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 on WTO for a bunch of things in our relationship with the United States. So that'll be interesting to watch. Canada finds itself caught in the middle of a tug of war between China and the U.S. Meng Wanzhou, who was going through Canada, she was changing planes, as you mentioned, and she was taken into custody by the Canadian authorities at the request of the Americans, and now she's facing extradition. The repercussions were very real for our economy, whether it was a, a meat from a beef farmers, whether it was the soybean industry. Uh, there's two Canadians still detained, being denied their liberty. China is getting more aggressive, not less. President Donald Trump's uh, comments uh, a few months back where he said he could intervene in the Meng Wanzhou case if it formed part of a broader US-China trade deal. Throwing a bit of a wrench into this case, essentially confirming that Meng Wanzhou is a bargaining chip in this larger trade deal. We will make sure that China knows that not only are we standing up for human rights and uh, calling on a safe return of the two Michaels who've been arbitrarily detained, but we stand with allies around the world Okay, I want to ask about China, um, because, as you know, our relationship with China has soured rather badly, um, and there seems to be a public opinion shifting here, perhaps matching public opinion in the United States. The president has not been very helpful in dealing, I'm specifically thinking about the, the two Michaels who are still imprisoned in China. Um, are we thinking that uh, Joe Biden would be any more helpful if he's elected? It's not clear. I I've actually been surprised at how little um, demagoguery we've seen from the 
Trump campaign vis-a-vis China. I actually was expecting him to be far more aggressive. I thought the Wuhan virus was going to be part of the regular narrative of the Trump campaign. Um, but look, there is clearly a cross-party consensus in the United States in an emerging Western democratic uh, par- uh, uh, government consensus that the re-rationalization of the West's assumptions about WTO ascension of China uh, needs to be confronted in a different way and re-rationalized to, to be more realistic vis-a-vis China. This idea that rule of law through trade leads to rule of law at home and abroad, which leads to perhaps democratization over time, has not has obviously been proven not to be the case. I think the government of Canada, strategically, where, where they want to position themselves, I suspect, <laughs> over time, is to get a clear sense from the United States government of, of what what their real interest is in Meng Wanzhou and whether or not they would actually drop the extradition uh, hearings and process. It's almost like a switch went off in the United States. And so what's kind of happened now is this march in you know this momentum building towards uh, greater hostility. And you see it on so many fronts. I mean, and just give you some examples of bills that have passed through Congress. Uh, Hong Kong sanctions bill, um, a, uh, a Uyghur uh, sanctions bill passed the U.S. Senate, 100 to nothing. Another sanctions bill over using uh, clothing um, uh, derived from forced labor in Xinjiang, 406 to 3 in the House of Representatives. I don't think it's passed the Senate yet. But then that raises questions about what happens to trading partners within North America. If you've, if you've cut off certain goods, uh, well, you know, you, have, you, you know, you share a trading block with Canada. What, hap- like, what kind of pressure does that put on Canada to emulate American policies in that regard? And I've heard some people here say Canada would have to adopt similar policies for it to be effective. The relationship between China and the U.S. has changed. It's going to affect Canada. And I think uh, you may see, obviously, a different uh, attitude or a different posture uh, under Biden, at least in terms of his style and the way he engages other countries. One of the things he wants to do is organize this uh, a summit of democracies, where basically you convene every other country and the private sector, uh, social media organizations, banks, talk about things like money laundering, um, and you talk about you know um, social media uh, standards. Uh, and basically, the, the whole idea would be to have everyone share ideas about uh, limiting or countering autocracy. Well, uh, the question for Canada then is, okay, what are you bringing to the table? But if I hear you correctly on China, except for a few pet projects that uh, Joe Biden has, this is really a Congress issue. It's an issue that's not changing. And it's unclear whether uh, Biden would be more receptive to Canada asking for help on Meng Wanzhou than Trump. But Trump I don't get the sense that the administration cares at all about this case. And it seems like the two Michaels might be there forever unless we do something unilaterally about it. Well, the Meng Wanzhou file in the United States has virtually no profile. And let's not overstate the degree to which, okay, A, the United States um, cares about about the, the you know, the, the, the case of the two Michaels and also um, the leverage it has with, with, with Beijing. I mean... I mean, there's been some reporting. I, I, I don't have first-hand knowledge of this, but the New York Times has, has, has reported pretty extensively on basically the assassination of multiple um, intelligence assets used by the United States within China over the last few years. Basically, that, that they're one of the most important, um, that the sources of American intelligence in China have been basically ripped out. Uh, they, that, you know, uh, that's one example. Uh, that, that Hong Kong, basically, the crackdown on democracy and human rights in Hong Kong, the United States has complained about it, and I don't see that changing. So basically, the United States, if the United States cannot influence Beijing's behavior on these far vaster issues than the fate of two Canadians, I, I don't know to which extent it's it's plausible to assume that a phone call from Washington to, to, to Xi Jinping to help these two Canadians in prison is going to actually change its behavior. 
I want to ask about conventional wisdom being that Canada is better off with Joe Biden being the next president. Do you both agree with that? Not if you live in Saskatchewan and Alberta. Not if you're a dairy farmer in in Quebec who's worried about access to Upper New York State into into New England and so on and into those exports and those current um, ratios. Um, you're not better off with the Democrats being in control. There's some, there's certain unknowns that you can't quantify, and that is you know social stability, uh, economic stability. There are things that you know, it's just a mug's game to predict, you know, because ultimately, frankly, the truth is Canada fares better when the United States is doing well. And, and you know, I don't have a crystal right. ball. I don't know what the United States looks like in 2023 <laughs> under a Joe Biden presidency versus Trump's. Um, however, uh, on the stuff we can probably observe, you know, there'd be pluses and minuses. And, and um, uh, I think James talked about uh, uh, trade and agriculture and the energy sector. Uh, but I just I think I go back to the defense point as 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 a as a, I think an example of how there are pluses and minuses. So look at um, NATO. Uh, Donald Trump. I mean, some of the people around him and some of the people who've observed him think there's a chance he'd pull out of NATO in a second term. I mean, I don't know whether that's likely, but but you know, it's 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 certainly more possible under him than it would be under Biden. So the United States threatening to pull out of NATO creates instability for Canada. Creates certainly instability uh, uncertainty for Canadian soldiers stationed in Latvia right now. On the other hand, uh, a Biden administration that says we believe in NATO, we believe in you know uh, in exporting democracy or the protection of democracy around the world, then creates the the potential that NATO gets used to do stuff, which creates other potential security threats for Canadian soldiers. It's complicated. There are pluses and minuses all over the map, but fundamentally, it's it's the the, the question. The answer to your question is, whatever makes the United States a, a happier, more stable, stable, more prosperous place makes Canada better. I, I would hope that a more prosperous America under either president would see this sort of four years of darkness as having been not a success story for the United States. And I would hope that Canada would play a role in in causing America to open up and to re-engage with the world, because the world without America is a very dark and I think dangerous place. Sounds like a good endpoint. Alex Panetta, James Moore, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Alex Panetta is a Washington-based correspondent for CBC News. He's covered Canada-U.S. issues since 2013. James Moore served in several cabinet posts in Stephen Harper's conservative government, including as Canada's Minister of Industry. He is currently a senior business advisor with Dentons and a public policy advisor at Edelman. Mr. Trudeau is willing to put his own political fortunes, a continued cover-up, ahead of the health of Canadians. The Prime Minister is looking for an excuse to go to an election, and I will not give the Prime Minister an excuse to go to an election. It was quite the showdown on Parliament Hill this week as the Conservatives sought to revive the we controversy and find ways to probe other potential government scandals. While the Liberals said, fine, we're going to the polls then. So did anyone come out ahead? HuffPost Canada's senior politics editor, Ryan Maloney, joins me now. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Althea. Thanks for having me. Of course. So who won? The public? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, yes, maybe the public or nobody. I'm not sure. Maybe Canadians who, who didn't want an election are the real winners this week. Um, but I guess if we're to look at it as sort of a crass political game, then I guess we have to say the Liberals won because they didn't want this committee to be formed. And it's not going to be formed. Uh, they won the vote, so they won the day. 
But of course, to get there, they had to let the cat of the bag, essentially saying, we're not afraid to have an election, even in a pandemic. Some might see that as Trudeau being petulant. Others might see it as Trudeau being strong, drawing a line in the sand, matter of opinion and taste, but uh, sure feels like an election is coming uh, one of these days, whether we like it or not. Oh, I was going to say, don't tell me that, but actually, I don't mind. I love elections. Um, some of the Tory MPs I was talking to this week uh, told me that they thought that their motion had been uh, to quit one of them too cute by half. Um, do you feel the Tories overreached? Well, I think that, you know, coming out and calling it an anti-corruption committee, as they did in the beginning, that that uh, that was deliberately provocative, right? Um, we hear the word corruption tossed around in the House of Commons or press conferences, but I mean, to actually have MPs sort of vote and agree that the government is corrupt um, does raise the question, okay, maybe it is time for an election. You know, uh, you're, maybe it is time for this minority uh, parliament to, to call if it the opposition day. is all in agreement that the government is corrupt. Exactly. So I do, I do understand that position. Um, we do have to say, though, that, you know, we've seen liberals stymieing um, investigations since parliament returned at committee, filibustering in sort of embarrassing ways. And... Uh, so you can understand why the opposition, the conservatives, wanted to get the we charity issue back on the front burner because it, we have to be honest, the prorogation, you know, uh, you know, took some of the window that sails there for sure. But I think that the 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 interesting thing here was the conservatives expanded it to include potential liberal scandals as well, um, questions about the ventilator contract that went to a former liberal MP's mm -hmm. uh, company. Um, the, Frank Bayless. Yeah, Frank Bayless, of course. Um, the questions about alleged lobbying of Trudeau's chief of staff, her, her husband, which the ethics Rob watchdog, Silver. Rob Silver, yeah. So they actually named people too, right, in the, in the motion. Uh, but the ethics watchdog basically already said there's not enough there to investigate. So um, by including all those things in one, um, it felt especially provocative. And maybe if they would have just kept it on we, uh, we wouldn't have had such a, uh, a standoff. So in the end, the NDP really saved uh, the Liberals' bacon. And I say this um, knowing that there are definitely some Liberals that did actually want to go to the polls. So maybe the NDP uh, did not do the Liberals a favor. But I was struck this week, you know, when we added up um, all the missing members, that there were actually quite a few, six missing Conservatives, which meant that um, had the NDP decided to abstain, not wanting to give in to the government or support uh, the opposition's call for an election, the Conservatives, they basically ensured that we would not take a trip to the polls. So did anyone actually want an election except for possibly some Liberals? Oh, dear. I mean, I definitely think it's it's safe to say that uh, Liberals uh, might have wanted an election. Mr. Trudeau might have wanted an election. They just don't want to be seen as the ones who caused that election. So we're kind of in this awkward and uncomfortable place because of the pandemic and the potential blowback of causing that election. So you saw both sides saying, you want an election. No, actually, you want an election. But at the end of the day, by the Liberals making this a confidence test, um, they certainly were, were throwing down the gauntlet and saying, we're ready to go. And there's maybe lots of good political reasons why they'd want to go now, right? Um, I think there's still goodwill for how the government's handled the pandemic. Of course, there's criticism and and uh, questions still to be answered, but generally speaking, their their polling has suggested that you know Canadians think they've done a decent job. There's also a sense of 
first of all, Mr. O'Toole is not very well known. We know that he, he said he needs to get better known to Canadians. He needs more time and space to do that. Um, but there's also a sense of we're in a crisis and do you want to change captains in the middle of a storm kind of thing. And so I think that it does favor incumbent governments. Uh, we've seen that in uh, New Brunswick, uh, seeing that potentially in, in British Columbia, uh, where people will stick with the, the leaders that they currently have. Um, and there's also the ethics investigation. We can't forget that uh, Mr. Trudeau's facing. Um, we know he didn't recuse from the we decision. He said he should have. One of the things the watchdog is looking into is him not recusing. So there is a sense that he could be headed for his third violation. And that in and of itself could be a springboard for an election, but for the opposition to have the upper hand, I think. I don't remember who it was, but there's somebody that I spoke with on this podcast, and I feel bad for saying that I don't remember who it was, but it told me that, you know, in a minority government, the only power the government has is the ability to basically threaten the opposition with uh, going to the voters, a trip to the polls. And that as long as the government is willing to go meet the electors, they can behave as if they have a majority. Are we basically seeing that happen now with the liberals? I guess time will tell on that. Uh, the The second motion that came out, the, the motion for a sort of expansive uh, health study of their pandemic response, there was a big question about whether they were going to make that a confidence measure, which they decided not to do. Um, so perhaps that suggests that they know that they can't play this this card every time. Um, that is the ultimate card, though, right? Um, and it, it's sort of somewhat ironically, you know, we saw people suggesting Trudeau was behaving a bit like Stephen Harper this week. Um, some pundits said Don Martin wrote a, a good column about that. And we remember like those Harper years, the Harper minority years, where they would declare certain things to be confidence tests and basically dare the opposition to go into an election. Um, it did make the liberals, the opposition liberals at the time, look weak. Yeah, they um, sat they on their hands a lot during yeah, abstaining. There were, there, were, there, were time, there were times they had to abstain. I think there was a time where they actually had to walk out of the, the House of Commons. And look, that doesn't uh, that doesn't always inspire confidence that uh, that these are the people that that uh, that are ready to fight an election, right? And in you know 2008, Harper just said, okay, enough of this, and he just not beating around the bush. I'm just going to call an election and. Um, of course, you know, he didn't win a majority, but they got a strengthened minority and who knows, maybe Trudeau, uh, will do the same, but, you know, circling around each other, I don't know if Canadians will have uh, much patience for many more weeks like we've had. So, uh, we'll see. Oh, does that mean you think an election is looming like before Christmas? I don't know that it'll be before Christmas, but I would, I, if I was a betting man, I would say, come on, like spring at least because... <sighs> I, like I said, I, people get tired of this stuff. If you if you if you want to go, kind of thing, let's do it. If you're not, uh, let's let's cool let's cool down. All right. So Ryan Maloney says he thinks there might be an election in the spring. Yeah, you can hold me to it. I'll, I'll either look like an idiot or a genius. Let's let's see. <laughs> Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Ryan Maloney is HuffPost Canada's senior politics editor. show 
If you're listening to us on iTunes, please leave us a review. We also love to get mail. You can send me a note on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Althea Raj is my handle. That's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J. Follow-up is produced by myself and HuffPost Ottawa reporter Zian Lum. Nicole Edwards was our technical producer this week. Thanks to both of them. I'm Althea Raj. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in your podcast feed with a fresh new episode in two weeks. Thank you.